the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Exclusively here on the two-man power trip of wrestling podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and every single week we sit down and we go back in time and we talk about something having to do with the WWF's new generation. And this week, as I'm flying solo, I'm uh, taking you back on a personal walk down new generation memory lane as I'm going to show you some things and tell you some things to maybe help you go out of your way to catch up on some new generation uh, stories, some new generation angles, some new generation moments that you might have missed or you've never seen before. Because in putting this show together, one of the things I've seen from people who comment and who you know are listening and who are messaging me and who are writing online are saying that either they're going back and watching stuff they haven't seen before, they're going back to rewatch stuff they haven't watched in years or this is just, you know, quite frankly, it's uh, it's brand new. You've never heard a thing about it. So the one cool thing I really loved hearing about the feedback is just that. So I'm going to kind of give you the personal touch here and give you my, uh, my some of my personal favorites that I think you should go out of your way to watch and kind of maybe become the template for your new generation viewing uh, as you explore it, because it's a forgotten era. And again, you know, look, if I had my druthers, this would be uh, the WWF Federation era and New Generation era podcast, because I love the 1980s uh, WWF. But this is something that I feel like a lot of people kind of tapped out on in the mid 90s. And uh, thankfully, I was still right there in the middle of it, uh, smack dab on Saturday morning or Monday night, watching this and uh, committing it to memory. But hey, look, I'd go back and do the Federation era tomorrow because I absolutely love those years of WWF shows, programming, house shows, pay-per-views, merchandise, the whole nine yards. But it's introducing people to this. And this is the stuff that I think if you're a fan or, you know, you want to be a historian or you want to be somebody that is is all about the wrestling business and, and the history of the wrestling business, this is a time period that needs to be spotlighted because it's just a time that people, like I said, tapped out or just weren't watching, period, and maybe started in the Attitude Era and beyond. So we'll take a walk back down memory lane here, uh, and we'll look at some stuff you need to go out of your way uh, to watch. Because, look, these these are very subjective podcasts. These are very, something that, look, I, it's coming out of my brain, what we're, we're listening to, but it's not any kind of expertise. It's not any kind of... Uh, diatribe to, for me to say you got to do this or you have to listen to this or, you have to watch this and I know everything about this no this is just something to keep you occupied and if you got nothing going on on a Saturday and it's raining and you need something to do when you're vegging out on the couch we'll tap into the old uh, chadsters list here and maybe you can uh, find some entertainment out of it so let's get right into it uh, I wrote down five things that I think you should go out of your way to watch from the new generation era uh, also, a couple little honorable mentions, but we'll touch on that uh, before we wrap up on the end of the episode. Um, but one of the things that popped into my brain first was something that I recall uh, a huge anticipation for 
especially for me personally, but that was Hulk Hogan returning to the WWF and making his Monday Night Raw debut on February 22nd, 1993 at the Manhattan Center. Now, obviously, the Hulkster had walked away and uh, kind of been on hiatus from the WWF since, I'd uh, say, about WrestleMania 8 uh, the prior year, 1992. Uh, of course, we all remember the Ultimate Warrior hits the ring, saves uh, the Hulkster from Papa Shango and Sid Justice and a vicious beatdown. And to end WrestleMania, we see the familiar sight of the Ultimate Warrior and the Hulkster, arms raised, you know, the Hogan music playing, the pyro going off. And that was it for uh, a great WrestleMania, but we didn't see the Hulkster uh, after that. And I believe he would go off and be filming Mr. Nanny uh, in that summer into the fall. I don't recall right off the top of my head, but the Hulkster was off TV for a while. And this was his return, but coming back seemingly into an absolutely uh, new landscape of not as many familiar faces as he would have been accustomed to. Um, you know, not as many of the WWF veterans around. There were still some, uh, but not as many, obviously, than there would have been, you know, in prior years. Uh, but also a different Hulkster coming back and looking a lot leaner and looking a lot more uh, thinned out than we were used to seeing. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, maybe the transition into Hollywood and not having to be on uh, different kinds of vitamins that uh, may enhance the, uh, the physique, but also coming off the WWF steroid trials of 1991-1992 and uh, Hulk Hogan being a huge uh, part of that and uh, having to testify uh, in that trial um, and basically fighting for Vince McMahon. And, uh, you know, it was a, a really weird time. Uh, if you're the Hulkster, the whole Arsenio Hall and having to go on and say, yes, I took steroids, but it was when it was legal. And it's the kind of thing that for wrestling, like, I don't know if we really should be even worrying about it because it is a, a business that's based off of the physique. We want people to be looking like uh, monsters, we want them looking like, um, you know, uh, larger than life characters. But now we get to see the Hulkster come back here in February 1993, and he's not looking the same. He's just he's a lot thinner. He, he's a lot more, uh, you know, leaned uh, out than we would normally be accustomed to. But nonetheless, it's a huge buildup and it was built up the prior weeks um, on Monday night raw. And it also coincided with Brutus, the barber beefcakes in ring return, which happened on the prior weeks, Monday night raw, where after his parasailing accident in 1990, uh, Brutus, the barber beefcakes had basically retired and was not working. He had done interview segments for a while. They were trying to bring him in at one point as a masked character uh, that was interfering uh, in matches on behalf of the baby faces. Uh, I can't remember if it was the Mariner, if it was like the Submariner, or it was something in that masked uh, iteration. I, I want to say it was the Mariner. And he just basically had on a mask and Brutus the Barber Beefcake's attire. It was kind of uh, not as uh, thought out as it could have been. Um, but Brutus the Barber Beefcake suffering the parasailing accident, I believe, on July 4th, 1990. And just completely destroying his face, basically almost ripping it off. And finally, here in February 1993, he's making his in-ring return. And he had on, you know, the bionic barber beefcake mask. And uh, he takes on Money Incorporated. I, I think it was IRS. or it might have been, No, maybe it was DiBiase. And uh, they take him out at the end. They hit him with the briefcase. And here we go. Now the Hulkster has a reason to come back. And coming back against a familiar foe in Ted DiBiase. But the buildup was great. 
I mean, and for Monday Night Raw to only be, you know, six, seven weeks into its run. And we got to see a lot of other people take the center stage. This time it was the biggest guy in the history of the company coming into this really small, intimate venue like the Manhattan Center. And it was just kind of a surreal sight. And when you heard the music hit, when you heard Real American, I can recall being in front of the television and just smiling ear to ear that my guy was back. And it was uh, it was such a cool moment. But you also see it with Vince McMahon. And the story was that Vince McMahon was you know, kind of feeling like eh, it was starting off a little slow with the new generation. And, you know, we would know they would build to the Money Inc. versus the newly formed Mega Maniacs, which is what happened on this February 22nd, 1993 Raw. Um, you know, the buildup would be for WrestleMania and the tag title match. And then we all know at the end of the night, the Hulk, the Hulkster would take on, I believe, his fifth world title and beat Yokozuna to close the show. And what people have very rarely seen, the footage is out there, but you got to go again out of your way to find it, is Vince McMahon coming out to the ring, breaking kayfabe, hitting the ring, and throwing the Hulkster's arm up in the air and basically screaming, happy days are here again, because he had felt we were going back in the right direction and we were back to the old WWF. Little did he know it wouldn't be that easy and the Hulkster wouldn't be around as long as maybe I think people have hoped. Um, but nonetheless, this February 22nd, 1993, Monday Night Raw, the build from the beginning of the night through the show to about the midway point when Vince McMahon does the you know dramatic Hulk Hogan you know, introduction. Um, it, is, uh, it is definitely uh, a stellar moment, one of the first of the Monday Night Raw era that uh, just it, it goes back. But it's also it's the New York crowd. This is the crowd that embraced Hulkamania. This is the crowd that in 1984 crowned this guy, the, the man, crowned this guy the world champion uh, when he beat the Iron Sheik and Hulkamania took off. And we all know that he took over not only the world, but New York City specifically as the Hulkster was over, folks. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Saturday Night Live uh, hosting that in 1985. Well, that's a New York institution. Okay, Madison Square Garden, the Mecca, the, the world's most famous arena, main eventing it basically every year uh, up until 1993. Um, this crowd loved him, and they give him a hero's welcome. There's no, you know, smart – I mean, they were smart fans, but there was no booing. There was no, you know, hating on the Hulkster at this point. Um, small venue, great reaction, real American, Vince McMahon. You can't go wrong, but the show itself is not bad. And if you have the WWE Network, you can check this full show. Uh, out you get um, uh, Shawn Michaels and the Beverly Brothers uh, taking on Tatanka and the Nasty Boys and this is the, I believe the first time that Shawn Michaels uses the what would be his now current uh, theme music where he's singing the theme music and not Sensational Sherry because they use the Sensational Sherry music for quite a while uh, even into his solo uh, departure from Sherry. This was the first night that the Shawn Michaels song Sexy Boy was used uh, on a Monday Night Raw. Um, and uh, also, again, building to Tatanka versus Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. Tatanka gets a victory over Shawn Michaels and pins him in the middle of the ring. And you get to see a, a kind of rare later uh, era Nasty Boys victory on Monday Night Raw, where they, uh, them and Tatanka get the, uh, the, the win over the Beverly Brothers and Shawn Michaels. You also get a Terry Taylor versus Crush match and a main event of Skinner versus The Undertaker. 
So still, 1993, The Undertaker still getting that main event spot. He obviously main evented the first Monday Night Raw. So uh, always having a, a marquee position. But the whole show is about Hulk Hogan. And if you don't know, if you're not a Hulk Hogan fan, if you don't like him for what's happened in the last few years, if you can just dial into uh, that part of your life or that time of when Hulkamania ran wild, this is a great little Easter egg that not a lot of people talk about. I just don't know why it doesn't get the uh, the due. It should because it's a great thing. It's 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 fun to see. And again, he's coming into this way different looking uh, WWF. And he kind of looks not out of place, but just different. Those red and yellow colors um, that he comes out in just uh, it's it's crazy uh, thinking about what the rest of the 1993 year would look like with no Hulk Hogan. Uh, and here he is in February uh, 1993. So definitely uh, check it out. You know, WWE Network, your YouTube will have it. WWE.com clips of things from that show are, can be found, but watch the whole show and get the context of uh, the entire night because it's definitely uh, it, it's one not to forget about uh, without a doubt. And again, I can go back to being a little Chadster and sitting right in front of that television and having it recorded and, and waiting for the minute murder she wrote ended to hit record and to be watching uh, this epic uh, return of uh, my guy at the time, uh, the immortal Hulk Hogan. So moving on, let's get to number two. On the uh, the Chadsters list here. Sorry, Chadsters got a little bit of a uh, little, little sinus thing going on this morning. So taking some breaks in between uh, the words. Hopefully uh, we'll edit it out, but I don't know if time will allow it. Uh, but moving on to number two, go out of your way to just chronicle the Marty Jannetty versus Shawn Michaels feud. Now, of course, this goes back to the barbershop in January 92. We all know it. Shawn Michaels super kicks Marty Jannetty through the barbershop. He super kicks him, then he throws him through the barbershop window. I think a lot of people do get that confused. Um, and setting off what would be uh, one of the more memorable heel turns of all time, and that is uh, Shawn Michaels going from rocker to uh, you know the egotistical sexy boy with sensational sherry and the mirror and the sunglasses and the chaps and all the Shawn Michaels accoutrement that we would be accustomed to for many years to come. But it was the return of Marty Jannetty in late 92 that would bring on the Royal Rumble 1993 match between the two of them. Now, we've talked about it on the year before. We've talked about it on prior shows that the Royal Rumble 93 match itself was a good match. But for the two of them, it didn't live up to the expectations because they had been having just stellar house show matches and the loop leading into the Royal Rumble was apparently just an absolute uh, gem night after night. And these two giving it their all and leaving it all out there, um, you know, just going the distance and leading to this Royal Rumble 93 match. I guess whatever they saw in the house shows just didn't translate uh, to the, the pay-per-view and Vince McMahon was not happy with it. And it basically squashed it right there. And they kind of would put the pause button on, um, but that match was almost different than what we would see in the, the next few months because Sensational Sherry was still a main part of that storyline and whose corner was she going to be in? You know, she was hit by accident with Shawn Michaels' mirror. 
Um, and you know, after he moved out of the way, Marty hits her, but then she kind of was like in Marty's corner. So it, it's a weird dynamic. It's uh, definitely something that, yeah, it, it wasn't necessarily needed in the larger scale part of the storyline, but since he was aligned with Sherry for a year, Shawn Michaels obviously looked like the, uh, you know, the tool that he wasn't uh, protecting his manager. Um, but then Marty Jannetty is then thrust into it. So yeah, you know, for the rocker storyline and the breakup didn't necessarily need it, but you would kind of see that in the coming months, as we talked about this on the show, for sure. Um, Marty Jannetty's surprise return where Shawn Michaels challenges anybody and a guy in a hood and sunglasses hops over the guardrail. Oh my gosh, it's Marty Jannetty. And thankfully, just like every wrestler should, and we've learned to know that they do, has his bag with him. He gets his stuff, puts on his gear, and we shockingly get a Intercontinental title change on Monday Night Raw. I believe the first title change on uh, Monday Night Raw, and that was on uh, May 17th, 1993. Uh, and again, go out of your way to find this one. And the match itself is on a lot of stuff, but the whole show, just take a look at it and see again, it's that Manhattan Center crowd and how much they're into everything because it was such an intimate venue for a live show like a Monday Night Raw. Like this is uh, this is out of control, but you get a title change to boot, and that's awesome. And it's a great moment, and the fans go nuts. Um, and the title reign wouldn't last long. Shawn Michaels would win it back on a house show, but Diesel would be the factor into that. And Diesel, who was the, quote, insurance policy of Shawn Michaels, plays into the finish, and we would get basically, you know, a new era of the Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, uh, you know, storybook, and new chapter, if you will. And now Diesel is uh, inserted in, but we got a, uh, a we got the the clean one on one, you know, Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, get a title change, and then a rematch on a house show, and Shawn Michaels wins it back. There's also an awesome steel cage match that took place um, around that time that's on one of the Coliseum video uh, releases that I believe it's inside the steel cage or, or it might be uh, bloopers, bleeps, and body slams. Um, but it's great. I think it's also on a Shawn Michaels DVD uh, at some point. There's been like six of them. So they, it's on one of those, um, but it's a great match. And, and it's it, it's something that if these guys had that on pay-per-view, it could be an all-time great match and people would be talking about it around the campfire for years to come. But nonetheless, look, these are guys that worked together for years. They were both veterans. They both just needed that spotlight to go one-on-one. -on -one. And I feel like every time they touched, it was uh, it was always something special. It was a great match. Um, and they also had a Monday Night Raw rematch in uh, July of 1993, which would be basically the television rematch from the house show that happened in May. And, you know, okay. It was a little bit after the fact. And again, Diesel's back in this match. Uh, but still, it's just great to see two guys going at it. Monday Night Raw um, in the Manhattan Center once again. And just a, a wonderful uh, contest between the two of them. And for those, you know, completists, and you need to see the whole entire picture, uh, July 1st, 1996, now we get to see a babyface world champion, Shawn Michaels, take on a new rocker heel, Marty Jannetty. Uh, with Leaf Cassidy on the outside. And now you get to see Jannetty taking some of the easy way out and some of the heel tactics being into it. But anytime these two would meet in a Royal Rumble or a Battle Royal or, or some sort of tag team match, they always played it perfectly. And they always hit the ring and were just going at it one-on-one. -on -one. 
And it was always such a cool thing to look forward to. I, I can remember specifically the 96 Rumble is the first year they used entrance music and the Marty Jannetty rocker music hits. He hits the ring and him and Shawn Michaels are dead central in the middle of the ring. Actually, both baby faces at that point um, and just pounding each other in the middle of the ring. And it was just always so cool to have the two of those guys uh, intersect and interlock and always just look. They 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 had a great team, but they were always always hating each other. And I feel like some of that stuff is lost uh, in, in more modern wrestling, not to be the old guy in the room, but it's one of those little things that just gets lost in the shuffle. Like you got to do dialbacks. You got to do callbacks to intense rivalries and feuds that you can't just walk by somebody in the back and be like, Oh yeah, we had a, a first blood match. Yeah. He's an asshole. Uh, but you know, I'll just keep walking. Yeah, we water under the bridge. It's all good. We, we, we fought it out. We're, we're happy now. Uh, Janetti and Shawn Michaels would always have that little side eye whenever they uh, were around and we would see an eventual rockers reunion in 2005, which was awesome and should have lasted longer, but didn't, but that's a Marty Janetti story for a different day. We could talk about those uh, all day long. Uh, moving on number three, uh, another match I've referenced before. I think this is the absolute hidden gem of the new generation era. And it's the Steiner brothers versus the Hart brothers, Brett and Owen, in Florence, South Carolina, as part of a wrestling challenge TV taping, uh, the match was also um, uh, taped and released on WrestleFest 1994, uh, which is a Coliseum video special. They did the WrestleFest every year for a uh, from about 19, they did 88, they did 90, they did 91, they did 92, and then 94, and I believe they skipped uh, 93, and then that was it after 94. Uh, but the taping itself took place on January 11th, 1994. So that's about uh, 10, 12 days before the 1994 Royal Rumble, where the Hart brothers would uh, take on the Quebecers for the WWF Tag Team Championship, uh, where Owen would kick Brett's leg out of his leg and uh, put forward the uh, the Hart brothers uh, feud of 1994 and beyond. Um, but also in the midst of all this, you had uh, Marty Jannetty and the 123 Kid defeat uh, the Quebecers, uh, and also then lose to the Quebecers a week later. So the Quebecers were kind of in limbo, uh, but still taking on the Hart brothers for the tag team championship at the 94 rumble. Well, here we are on January 11th and we got the Steiners taking on, uh, the Hart brothers, which I mean, look, what, what could you do with that? Oh, gee, as gorilla monsoon would say main event anywhere in the country. Imagine that on a pay-per-view. Imagine that as the main event of a Saturday night's main event or a Monday night raw or some Sunday night slam or a specialty show to build up a pay-per-view. Uh, but nonetheless, the people of um, Florence, South Carolina got a treat uh, with Brett and Owen taking on Rick and Scott Steiner. Okay. It was a double count out for the finish, but it's a 24 minute match. So think about the chain wrestling. Think about uh, just the, you know, the, the hot tags and the, you know, just the absolute, uh, workmanship that would go into a 24 minute match with four guys that can work. And you get all the, uh, the specialties of the Steiners and the hearts, uh, all the signature moves. Um, the finish would come as uh, they were uh, Brett and Rick were knocked to the floor and Scott and Owen came off the top onto their opponents after the bout, the fight was broken up by referees until Scott grabbed a mic and said the Steiners came here to beat the hearts and challenge them to get back in the ring. But the brawl continued until the referees and the officials uh, would just basically throw it out and just reading that off here. The uh, history of WWE uh, website, uh, but it's also on the heart and soul 
DVD, the anthology of some of the Hart family's greatest matches. Uh, just again, a great contest that doesn't get a lot of credit and doesn't get the due. Uh, it's uh, it's rightly deserved uh, for this era because, you know, not that we say this era had stinkers. A lot of them, Bret Hart was in the greatest matches of the era, you know, but you got your ladder match at WrestleMania 10, you know, the cage match at SummerSlam 94, uh, Bret versus Owen at WrestleMania 10. This has to get into the conversation because it is that good of a match. And unless you had the Coliseum video, unless you pressured your mom uh, to rent it for you over and over, you only saw it maybe once. And if you got this heart and soul DVD, you know, did you watch every match on it in its complete form? But if you didn't, this is the time now to go back and take a look at it because why we don't know that much about it. I don't know. I can't tell you that. I don't know why they wouldn't put it on TV. But if I had the uh, the booking power, this would have been a uh, either a semi-main event or and hell, I'd put this on Royal Rumble '94. Have this be the match that uh, Owen turns on Brett. You know, I mean, we saw the Steiner brothers take on Sting and Luger in WCW, two baby faces going at it, and it's one of the WCW's greatest matches uh, in history. So I'd put this in in the 1994 Royal Rumble lineup over the Quebecers versus Brett and Owen, uh, even though, like I said, Owen kicked Brett's leg out of his leg. So, you know, we can't go back and change history. But if I could, I would put this match on the 94 uh, Royal Rumble uh, card without a doubt, because uh, it's just it's a it's a five star. If you want to quote people who give star ratings, it's a 10 out of 10. If you want to give it a number rating, but also if you want to uh, give it a grade, I give it an A plus because it is that good, complete with the um, the Hart brothers, uh, you know, just being a, such a, a fluid and uh, great chemistry team. I'm sure having done it a million times in the dungeon uh, prior to that. So uh, moving on, number four, uh, how about this one? And this is something we've touched on very, very ever so gently on New Generation Declassified. But it's a uh, it, it's a little bit of a feud that uh, it had a great blow off. But the uh, the build is what we got to talk about. And it is the Crush and Macho Man Summit from October 8th, 1993, as uh, the the absolute uh, destruction that Crush would cause the Macho Man and flicked on him to turn on his brother to turn on uh, the guy who helped him recover and who helped him. Uh, get back to uh, to full strength while he was recovering from a back injury. Crush turning on the Macho Man um, gave Macho Man basically his last blood feud of uh, his WWF career. Um, we've talked about the the blow off, which was uh, WrestleMania 10's uh, Falls Count Anywhere match at Madison Square Garden. Uh, but October 18th, 1993, the uh, the Crush. Macho Man Summit, Bobby Heenan overseeing this in the middle of the ring, I believe, at the Mid-Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie, New York, as a goateed crush would come out with Mr. Fuji to kind of confront the Macho Man for uh, pressuring him to join the uh, Body Slam Challenge that uh, Yokozuna would issue to the uh, the superstars and the uh, athletes out there in the uh, the United States and uh, see who could stop the the behemoth and crush who was already suffering from an injury, injuring his back a little bit further. And during that time, we checked in on crush a lot. They would always go to him in an event center or kind of like a special uh, WWF uh, news update 
go out to uh, to Hawaii and show crush on the beach, you know, getting better, getting strong. And eventually coming back, they'd have him call into Monday Night Raw and Macho Man would just be talking about how resilient Crush was and how if anybody could come back from an injury, it was going to be Crush. And uh, this summit in the middle of the ring on Monday Night Raw basically becomes the Macho Man talking Crush out of joining Mr. Fuji and aligning with Yokozuna and and the devious one, Mr. Fuji, um, leading to just a epic, epic beatdown of the macho man by crush um, just, you know, p- pressing him outside the ring and dropping him on the guardrails. And Oh my goodness gracious. Just uh, the, the selling of the macho man uh, second to none. Uh, I can say that uh, very, very, very easily as uh, you just, you, you thought the macho man was dead afterwards, but the, cr- the aggressiveness of crush um, again, maybe it was the goatee. He became uh, evil crush based off of that. But what would he do? We'd see him from yellow and purple Kona Crush squashing coconuts and squashing brains to face painted again, kind of like when he was in Demolition, all purple with silver and uh, just a, a goatee and a cooler look to crush than just that mullet and the orange and the yellow and the green and purple and all these different colors he had on his tights. Um, but hey, when you go after uh, the big dog, the macho man, that right off the bat, you're you're catapulted to um, a different status in terms of where you are in the pecking order. And it would carry through Survivor Series uh, where Macho Man would try to interfere. It would carry through into the 94 Rumble, where in the midst of Diesel's uh, dominance in the 94 Rumble, the heels get a kind of straight run where they just decimate everybody that hits the ring. And one of them is uh, Randy Savage. And uh, Crush eliminates the Macho Man in the 94 Rumble. And, you know, we get on the way to uh, to WrestleMania, which we talked about in the uh, awesome promo that I chronicled uh, back in July, where uh, the Macho Man uh, tells Vince McMahon Crush cost him his last shot at the WWF title versus Yokozuna, which actually was the case. And uh, this false count anywhere match, which would be Macho Man's last WrestleMania match, it really meant a lot. And it was a big deal. And this ma- this this moment, this October 18th, 1993, it's on WWE.com. It's on the network if you want to watch the full episode. And it's on uh, Monday Night Raw's Prime Cuts if you have the, uh, the VHS copy, the first Monday Night Raw compilation that was released, which is a great, uh, great compilation, uh, of course. Who, who would it be great coming from Coliseum Video? It's just a personal bias. Uh, but go out of your way to check that out. It's intense. It's uh, it holds up and it's an epic beatdown and the Macho Man uh, you think needs some uh, immediate medical attention after uh, Crush destroys him on the outside dropping him two or three times on the guardrail. Oh, I can't imagine what it feels like. I don't know what the Macho Man was experiencing that night, but the uh, the the feud was on and the two of them would be off to the races after that night but also don't discount uh, bobby heenan's role he plays a great weasel if you will uh if you find that uh interestingly enough uh and let's close out the list number five and this is kind of a broad uh look into this one character because uh people have been talking about it as of late you just saw here on the tmpt empire uh podcast feed that we had the brooklyn brawler on with john uh in the tmpt interview and the Brooklyn Brawler was talking about, you know, auctioning off uh, an original, <coughs> excuse me, version of the Matt Bourne doink costume that was given to him 
by Pat Patterson after Matt Bourne could not make it to a WWF event in Canada. And they had the costume and they gave it to Steve Lombardi, the Brooklyn brawler, who would be doing for a short amount of time before it would be handed over to Ray Apollo, who would become, you know, what would be more known as the babyface doink. Um, but the Matt Bourne doink is something that gets lost in the shuffle big time. Uh, one, because Matt Bourne was legit crazy and believable as what I could only describe as we would later see the Dark Knight Joker, uh, what we see as Pennywise and the more current It movies, the Stephen King It books and movies that have been out in the last couple of years. You see elements of Matt Bourne's doink in the Joker. Yeah, I said it. And also in Pennywise in the It movies uh, because he played this psychotic clown that could chain wrestle and could brawl, but it's a guy in a clown getup. And when he first debuted in the end of 1992, you saw some of the gags. He, you know, did the thing with crush where he ripped off his arm, beat him with the, uh, the cast and the arm. Uh, you know, he would, uh, spray stuff with the little kids, you know, throw the bucket at the kids and wouldn't be water or, you know, stuff like that. Clown stuff. He's just clowning around, but it's all about the character. It's the facials. It's the music. It's the look. It's the way it's shot. It's the WWF production team grabbing the images of those kids that were frightened and scared and just didn't want anything to do with this heel doink, this evil clown. And it all goes to Matt Bourne's psychology and how he approached this character and it, whether he can go from a smile to a frown, a smile to a scowl, these little things, the transitions were just an absolute masterpiece. Um, but to then throw in the fact that this guy could get in the ring and wrestle two matches. I, I pointed out specifically, there's a King of the ring 1993 qualifying match on Monday night raw versus Mr. Perfect. And there is a SummerSlam match with Bret Hart at SummerSlam 1993, where it's supposed to be Jerry Lawler versus Bret Hart in what would be the, uh, you know, the culmination of the King of the Ring beatdown that Lawler gave uh, Bret after winning the King of the Ring. But his court gesture, Doink, comes in and faces Bret, and Bret ends up technically kind of losing because he locks Doink uh, in the sharpshooter. Am I getting confused? He like Doink, and he beats Doink, and then he gets Lawler in the sharpshooter, but they kind of reverse the decision based off of Bret's refusal to uh, let go of the sharpshooter, but the match itself between Doink and Bret Hart, you don't see a clown having a technical masterpiece of a match with a guy like Bret Hart, but Matt Bourne pulled it off. And yes, Matt Bourne would kind of begin the babyface turn of Doink uh, by uh, dropping the bucket of water on Bobby Heenan. Great way to uh, turn heel. But again, it's, it's not just, the uh the music it's not just the uh the attire it's matt born playing doink and i don't think it gets the appreciation it does because people think doink they think jokes they think doink they think uh stupid idea it's a clown you know we go from having uh undertakers who are you know zombies to uh you know uh, clowns and guess what undertaker one of the most memorable characters in the history of uh wrestling and Doink, look, he's still getting impersonated on indie shows to this day. I just saw a clip from 2019 on an indie show in Kentucky where they had a version of Doink, albeit a you know F-level version. 
still it's it's getting done now it's getting impersonated now in in 2019 2020 so the character had legs but it goes back to the beginning it goes back to the original doink matt born and the genius portrayal of an evil clown um uh, of born it was off the charts and we would see him in ecw not too far after he left uh, the wwf the born again matt born where he's half doink half matt born uh and again elements of the dark knight elements of that joker because he's not fully painted the paint's running a little bit it's kind of half put on it's tragic looking and he gives these long psychological like uh promos of you know the the, the tormenting that's going on in his head and how he's going to inflict that torment on his opponents. And it's it just a masterful uh, performance of Matt Bourne. And again, before he passed away, he did then kind of bring the element of the dark Knight Joker into the doing character. And he would paint his face almost exactly like uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, which, you know, by that point he was well into his fifties. It didn't have the same appeal. It was, you know, a good attempt and uh, great for any kind of indie show you saw him on. Um, but before he passed away, tried it one more time. And I bet you now it'd probably get over. Cause look at the fiend. I mean, the fiend is just more of an evil doink. You know, he's got the mask, he's got the face paint and he will, you know, obviously, uh, go down a little bit more in terms of his character. But I absolutely think without a doubt that Matt Bourne's doink is, um, something that we need to, uh, remember, because it is, uh, it's a masterful performance, and I don't know why people don't give it the uh, credit it deserves in terms of the pantheon of uh, the wrestling business. And I just don't get it. But maybe this will all change as we uh, as we kind of see a different emphasis on wrestling's history. Because you know, look, fans are a little more diehard now than they were in the past. And, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, you're a podcast fan, you're a wrestling fan, you, you, you're kind of invested and you maybe might take this to heart and go check it out. And I'd love to know what you think, because all these things I mentioned, Matt Bourne is doing the crush macho man summit, Steiner brothers versus the Hart brothers, uh, the Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty feud, um, and Hulk Hogan's debut on Monday night raw in 1993. These are all great things that maybe, you know, you gotta be more of a diehard to, uh, appreciate, but still, you know, it's just my opinion. And I think uh, as other fans may find, they, they could enjoy it. And there's other um, stuff out there than just the things that they kind of condition you to like, hey, like this. The ladder match is the greatest match in history at WrestleMania 10. You know, uh, the, the Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12 is uh, epic. It's not. It stinks. It's very boring. Um, but let's give a couple honor- honorable mentions. We mentioned Tatanka versus Lex Luger a few weeks ago. I just want to hit that home again. Go check that out if you haven't watched it. It's a great one. Uh, the build, the match, yada, yada, yada. A um, little bit of a moment. Let's go to WrestleMania 10. Let's go to the main event. Uh, the celebration of Bret Hart at the end of uh, the title match against Yokozuna is fantastic. Uh, all the baby faces hit the ring and hoist them on their shoulders, carry them around. Vince gets in the ring. Burt Reynolds is in the ring. And it's great. There, there's no two ways around that. It. It's just a, a fun, uh, emotional uh, moment in the history of WrestleMania. Uh, Razor Ramon's turn in the summer of 93. Uh, subtle and uh, you almost feel bad for the guy as Money Inc. kind of picked on him for losing to the one, two, three kid. And uh, kind of led to uh, what would be a new generation babyface staple of the bad guy uh, as a good guy. Uh, but the turn itself, uh, great build, uh, SummerSlam 93. 
um, taken on, I believe it was uh, IRS, uh, but nonetheless, great, uh, great little build. Uh, watch uh, the bad guy become a good guy. Uh, honorable mention, of course. So watch the other things first. And then I got to give my buddy credit where credit's due. I got to give the franchise a hat tip. Uh, Dean Douglas, folks. Uh, I just saw a video of Dean Douglas shared on Twitter over the weekend, uh, giving Aldo Montoya a double A grade as uh, absolutely awful. Um, just 100% Dean Douglas. If they let Shane be the franchise as the Dean or let Troy Martin be Dean Douglas and let him talk as we know Shane Douglas can talk. It, it would, could have been a completely different character because as I listened to this promo by Dean Douglas in the monotone direction of Vince McMahon and company, it just took you right out of it. And the absolute fact of that verbiage being Shane or Troy or whoever is portraying the Dean, if you just change the tone of his voice, it's a completely different uh, little, uh, little ditty. It's a completely different segment. And that is the difference maker in the, the Dean Douglas historical timeline. If he got to be what Shane saw Dean Douglas as different character. If since, since it was Vince McMahon's creation and we saw it as what Vince wanted it, a monotone evil teacher, that's what you got. And that's why Shane does not like the Dean Douglas character. And that's why a lot of fans don't really recall a lot of what Dean Douglas did. Although I can say both his co-hosts on the Triple Threat podcast, your TMPT buddies, we love Dean Douglas because we know what it gave you and we know what it really the, the expectations were with Shane coming in and we know what happened and it sucks, but we like Dean Douglas and we kind of wish he would uh, embrace it a little bit more. Uh, but nonetheless, Dean Douglas gets an honorable mention and he will get a larger uh, detailed episode at some point. Because there's nothing more I like hearing uh, than hearing the franchise talk about uh, those months as the Dean. Uh, not a happy time uh, to be uh, Shane Douglas in the wrestling world. But nonetheless, we will curb that uh, for another show. Uh, want to thank you for listening to me for the last 42 minutes. I hope I didn't uh, kind of lull you to sleep or put you uh, into some sort of a uncomfortable position where you either change the episode or moved on to something else. Um, because I appreciate everybody who listens to anything that we record. And I love uh, doing this new generation deal right now. So um, go about and find some of this stuff. Go watch it. I think it'll be uh, a lot of fun for you to go check out so we'll wrap it up here if you want to listen to more in the tmpt empire head to tmptempire.com check out all the great interview podcasts going on check out the new generation declassified check us out triple threat podcast on the uh, the russo brand and if you want to follow me on uh, instagram or twitter it's at chad e and b and uh you know there's no crack broadcast team to say goodbye so i'll just have to do it myself uh for the crack broadcast team who is off and for everyone in the new generation declassified universe. This is the Chadster and we'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.